You're listening to Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back. It's episode three, Ohio vs. Exotic Animals. Ohio v. the World is now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. They have got podcasts in almost any genre, some great history shows, obviously, um, but they've been awesome to work with. And again, evergreenpodcast.com. Go find a new show that you'll love today. Thanks to everyone. We are blown away by how many people listen to our first two episodes about Challenger and McCarthyism. And today we're going to tell the crazy real story of the biggest exotic animal escape in American history. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Zanesville Zoo Escape. But that's really a euphemism. Exotic really means dangerous, and escape means release. It's really the crazy real story of the biggest dangerous animal release in American history. It's a terrorist attack when Terry Thompson released 50 of the most dangerous animals in the world on his hometown of Zanesville, Ohio. This story is one of the wildest events I can remember during my lifetime here in Ohio. It, it made international news. We'll break down the history of exotic pet ownership in America that helped lead to this incident happening. How and why in the United States is there more privately owned tigers than there are that exist in the wild across the entire world? How did this happen? The bizarre world that's been growing and festering was exposed in the hit 2020 Netflix series Tiger King. Joe Exotic will make an appearance some of the other characters from that very weird, very bingeable show. And they have a role in this story and in this world of exotic pet ownership. we got some great guests today, two amazing journalists and writers and a wild animal expert who was there that fateful night and part of the police response to the zoo escape. There's just so much story to get to that we're going to dispense with the pleasantries and just get started by taking you back to Zanesville, Ohio on that Tuesday afternoon, October 18th, 2011, when a town was terrified, a massacre was necessary, an event that changed the strange world of exotic animal ownership in America. We'll delve into this hard-to-believe story of lions, tigers, and bears. It's episode three, Ohio vs. Exotic Animals. 911. Yeah, there's a lion on Mount Perry Road in Grayshaw. I'm pretty sure, and I just saw a wolf. I think I just seen one. Looks like a jaguar or a wolf or something. Before we get into the almost action movie type episode that we have today, there's a question that Miss Ohio v. The World asked me when I was putting this episode together. She's like, why do people own these animals? And it was, she asked me the same question when we watched Tiger King during the, the start of the pandemic last year. And it is a crazy question. Why own these uh, a Bengal tiger in your house? It's just something I don't understand, but thousands of Americans have done this. Our first guest is the director of Outreach for Animals. He's located in the, in the Dayton area of Ohio. But he goes all over the country. Tim Harrison, retired police officer paramedic in the city of Oakwood, Ohio. Tim has built an entire life. If somebody has an escaped python, if you've got a cougar running through the streets of your town, Tim's the guy to call. He will show up and he will take care of the problem. We talk with Tim about just when did this start? 
in the role of the media in the 80s and the 90s. How did this problem of exotic animal ownership start in the United States? I've been doing this for 47 years. 1995, everything changed. Before that, I was getting five or six calls a year where you would get a bear chained up in somebody's backyard in Ohio or a python loose or something like that. Then after reality TV started, it exploded. Yeah. I mean, literally exploded. It went from five or six a year to over 112. So everything they saw on TV was immediately for sale in the uh, classified ads at that time or at the auctions. We had more auctions in the state of Ohio and bigger ones in the entire country. Some say when I was in South Africa, we actually had bigger auctions than they did across the country or the world. And the sad part about that, because we had no laws. So people, they were easy to get. People would watch their heroes on TV. Austin Stevens, Snake Master was one of them they always mentioned, or Steve Irwin. They want to imitate Steve Irwin. And uh, God rest his soul. The whole thing was, is that they would see this. It was like a monkey see monkey do. And people don't believe me. Always remember when 101 Dalmatians is shown, every time it's shown, even now when it's shown, people rush out and buy themselves a Dalmatian pup. Uh, they have to because that's what they saw on TV. Yeah. And about two or three months, ask any local humane society, they get dumped back off again because nobody wants them. Then look at Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo, the whole stinking movie says, don't put me in the aquarium. People buying clownfish, giving them to their children and bringing them into their homes in America. When the director of the first documentary, The Elephant in the Living Room, came out with me, and he kept saying, Tim, you blame the media way too much, way too much. I said, well, then you ask them why they have a tiger in their basement. You ask them why they got an alligator out back to bit the little girl and, and date, and I had to go get out of that six-footer. He started asking them, and every one of them, every single, connect the dots. Oh, I wanted to be like Steve Irwin. I wanted to be like a Jack Hanna on TV. I wanted that tiger cub. And the other one is people actually believe this now. This is the one that stuns me. And we've been working on so hard. They want to conserve conservation. They think if they keep a tiger in their backyard, that's going to, it's going to protect the tigers in the wild. They're going to be able to have a breeding population. And I'll tell you right now, we have no pure tigers in the population. We have what they call American tigers. They ain't going nowhere. They're mutts. Yeah. So we have, a, we have a situation where people think they're conservationists, and then they also want to imitate what they see on TV. Our second guest today is Rachel Neuer, award-winning uh, freelance journalist, writes stories. She's been on the front page of the New York Times, uh, National Geographic, Scientific America. She's a science writer uh, and the author of the excellent book, Poached, Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking. She's traveled the world, and she's also the host of a great podcast from last year called Cat People. It's actually came out. They did an episode about Terry Thompson. Uh, they, they really delved into the story of Joe Exotic before the, the Netflix ever came out uh, and really give a much more truthful version of events uh, of, of the Tiger King story. But Rachel talks to us also just about the role of television in expanding and the, the explosion of exotic pet ownership in the United States. In the 1990s, we saw a lot of sort of Jack Hanna type characters showing up on TV with adorable tiger cubs, you know, bottle feeding them, handling them, um, giving the impression that these are animals that can be treated just like a dog or a cat. And in the same way that social media drives trends today, reality TV um, and just TV in general were igniting interest in this issue in the 1990s. So a lot of people say that, yes, like this really pushed the, the cub petting phenomenon and, you know, by association, the tiger ownership. 
Our uh, first guest is a wonderful man, a, a good friend of ours, has been with the show forever, it yes, seems like, and, and never fails uh, to come out here and present uh, wonderful animals that you ordinarily would not get to see, and I hope it encourages folks to go uh, support their local zoos. Uh, speaking of zoos, our first guest is the director emeritus of the Columbus Zoo, which means he does nothing. He is also... <laughs> The host of the Emmy Award-winning television series, Jack Hanna's Into the Wild. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the one, the only, Jungle Jack Hanna. Jack Hanna, one of the local celebrities here in Columbus, Ohio, the former director of the Columbus Zoo, and again, stars in his own wildlife programs. And Jack Hanna's been one of the go-to experts on, on animals here in the United States for the last 40 years. Certainly his work uh, at the Columbus Zoo has built it into one of the world's first class uh, zoos and aquariums. You know, it was even part of a Jeopardy question a couple months ago about Columbus. We were really saddened to hear that Jack Hanna, his family, made a statement last month that he's suffering from dementia and likely Alzheimer's disease at age 74. He's retiring from public life, um, but we wish Jack the best. Uh, and all he's done for the city of Columbus. Our third guest is a native Ohioan and a great writer uh, and professor, Matt Tullis. He's an assistant professor of English, director of the digital journalism program at Fairfield University in Connecticut. He used to teach at Ashland University here in Ohio, but also was a, a newspaper reporter for a decade. We actually, our time in Worcester, Ohio, overlapped together when he wrote it for the Daily Record. Matt also was the writer at the Columbus Dispatch, uh, and his main beat was writing about the Columbus Zoo. Matt's the host of a great podcast called Gangray, which focuses on narrative journalism. We asked Matt about who is Jack Hanna and how did he get to the Columbus Zoo and become such a big star? Well, I was at the dispatch for about a little more than two years, and I was basically covered the zoo for most of that time, um, which I loved. It was the most fun job I could ever have. I was going to the zoo once a week and and hanging out behind behind the scenes with zookeepers and stuff. And and I and I talked with Jack a lot uh, for a, a lot of different types of stories. You know, he um uh, he was an animal lover through and through, and that's kind of um, who he is. He came to Columbus in, in like the the mid to late seventies, yeah. Um, primarily because his daughter had his daughter had cancer, and Columbus Children's Hospital is one of the best places to be at that time. Uh, and so that's how Jack ended up getting latched on with the Columbus Zoo. And and one of the really super smart things he he did was he got involved with television. He wanted to show people animals, talk about them and let people know about them. And it, I mean, he was one of the first people who started doing that. Right. So he was on the Letterman show. Good morning, America. And then next, you know, he's got Saturday morning shows that are on constantly. I was literally flipping through channels uh, over here in Connecticut on Saturday and lo and behold, there was Jack Hanna and a, a Jack Hanna show that was just on. I think it was maybe the the Animal Planet, right? Uh, Jack, they were running Jack Hanna shows all day long. Uh, yeah, and it was it's kind like of cool. thirty years he's been doing that at least. And yeah, and he has, you know, and and he became in so many ways the absolute face of the zoo, right? He was very much also a person who was not the type of uh, a zoo operator who thought that animals should be kept in cages. Right. Which is what which is what zoos were like in, in the 80s. Right. They were caged yeah. animals. He was very much um, let's build open spaces for these animals to be able to, to wander around and not constantly be not spend 24 hours a day in a cage to where people can just walk by and look at them. 
And if you go to the Columbus Zoo now, you know, when I was a reporter there, that's when they really started opening it up, right? They built Asia Quest, which was a nice wide open space. Um, they built the African Savannah, which, you know, that, that was opened after I left the dispatch. But, oh, my golly, you're there and it looks like you're looking out onto forever and you've got the, you know, all the, the, the lions and, and, and all the animals just kind of with a ton of space, a lot more space than you would ever think. And that, that was him. I mean, he really thought that that's how animals um, within zoos should be treated. The reason we bring up Jack Hand is he would be there in Zanesville when, during the zoo escape and play a role in that event. But Jack also had a history of animal disasters of his own. We talked to Matt Tullis about Jack Hanna's past. This goes all the way back into the early 70s when he was in Knoxville, right? And this is kind of in a lot of ways what led to him um, not necessarily going directly to Columbus, but how did a big impact on his on on how animals should be treated and that type of thing. He was he was running a petting zoo out of his father's farm. Yeah. Right. In the 70s, he was collecting exotic animals. He was I mean, in a lot of ways was doing kind of what Terry Thompson was doing, although I'm sure in a much better um, kind of environment. And in 72, a three year old boy had his um, his arm arm ripped off by by an African lion. Um, and Jack was there when it happened, right? So in so many ways, I think that played a really big role in him and his relationship with animals and how they should be treated, but then also how we need to respond when, when things go bad. biggest reasons that we've had this explosion of especially in big cat ownership is the phenomenon of cub petting across the United States roadside zoos where people can get pictures and spend time with baby tigers and cub petting as it's called Rachel Neuer and her podcast cat people actually goes to a roadside zoo and spends 15 minutes with a cat uh, I think it actually scratched her producer when they were there we asked Rachel Neuer about the phenomenon of cub petting and its role in this entire story. So cub petting really drives and underlies this issue of big cat ownership in the U.S. because, you know, you've got these roadside zoos like, you know, Joe Exotic's now notorious and famous zoo, which is where I visited, that have, um, you know, these cute little tiger cubs or lion cubs or like mixed breed cubs, and you can go and have your photo taken and, you know, the whole family can come and maybe it's going to be like your tender profile photo or whatever. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's just like a weird, interesting, adorable thing to do. Like who doesn't want to cuddle a baby tiger in theory? Um, the problem is these places need a constant influx of cubs to keep those photos going. And, you know, cubs grow up within a few months, like they're way too big and dangerous to be handled. And then what are you going to do with all these extra cats you suddenly have, you know? This is an animal that can, you know, a tiger can eat like $10,000 worth of meat in a single year, not even to like take into account veterinary care and things like that. So these roadside zoos are then having to kind of offload or um, people call it the breed and dump cycle, you know, get rid of all these excess animals. And that's really what's been driving uh, this phenomenon of big cat ownership in the U.S. And again, yeah, she goes, Joe Exotic's uh, roadside zoo. Go listen to Cat People. It's a great podcast. We'll put a link to to that show in the show notes, five episodes with Rachel Neuer in association with Outside Magazine. But we asked Rachel Neuer, is it really true that there's more privately owned tigers in the United States 
than exist in the wild in the entire world. Yeah, isn't that wild? Um, there's fewer than 4,000 wild tigers remaining all over the world where tigers roam, you know, from Russia to India to Indonesia. And nobody actually knows, which is even crazier, how many tigers live in the U.S. And again, that's because there's, there's no federal law governing it like oh you have to register your tiger with the u.s government or anything like that so some states keep up with it you know some ban it some have like some sort of registry and some have nothing so we really don't know exactly how many there are here but fish and wildlife service does estimate that there's more than four thousand. so that's where that statistic comes from we welcome back to the show from uh, outreach for animals tim harrison tim sent us a lot of footage um, that he's collected over the years and one of the biggest problems especially here in ohio were these wild animal, exotic animal auctions held in Amish country in, in Ohio. And really, these videos are shocking. I mean, these barns are just filled with people buying these animals, any animal you can imagine. You could buy a tiger, you know, for two or 3000 bucks, sometimes less. And people like Joe Exotic, uh, Doc Antle, moving these animals through auctions, and the biggest auctions were right here in the Buckeye State. We talked to Tim Harrison about the problem of animal auctions. I went to Costa Rica. They brought me in to do the, the Wild Animal Summit, brought all the world's best people in. I said, what am I doing here? They wanted to see my unrecovered footage of our auctions in Ohio. <laughs> what we were doing here in Ohio was actually damaging things in the world. So it was one of those things when you said uh, Ohio versus the world, kind of, we're you know, we're in a situation where we did some damage by not having anything here and being the, you know, being the, uh, the wild, wild west, as the New York Times calls. So they bring them in and each barn would be packed to the brim with everybody from school teachers to police officers. I'm a retired police officer, firefighter, paramedic for the city of Oakwood near Dayton. All kinds of people in there buying these animals and taking them home. And we're talking about hyenas, as you saw, dangerous, yeah. dangerous wild animals. That's the only thing I'm not up against guppies and geckos. I'm not against that. I'm saying dangerous wild animals is going to cause a public safety problem, as we've been finding out across the country. So these auctions, um, what it is, is just demand. It started off in people's backyards. It started fairgrounds. And it got so big, Alex, got so big, they would take up the whole town of Mount Hope. Yeah. And you know why they could get away with it in Mount Hope? This was told to me by a sheriff's deputy. He said, because they have their own world, their own laws, and it's their own island. Nobody bothers them in there. So Mount Hope is Amish. So they would bring the animals from all these roadside zoos. Ohio had the most roadside zoos of any place on the planet. A roadside zoo is not a credited facility like uh, Cincinnati Zoo. This is, these are people, just small and paw places that would open up with tigers in the backyard or alligators in ponds. And people would come in and get their picture taken and stuff with them. They were all over Ohio, all over the place. There were breeders everywhere, as we found out once the, once the uh, crap hit the fan after Zanesville. Being a law enforcement officer, I know how to wiggle my way into these situations. Mm -hmm. and I would go in there, the most venomous snakes in the world. The most We don't even have anti-venom yet in the United States for some of them. And you get in there and it's like, oh my gosh, it's overwhelming, as you saw in the video. It's overwhelming. As fast as you can bring black leopard cubs out, as you saw in the one video, stacked on top of each other, fast as they come out, they just get auctioned off and off they go and nobody knows where they go. Nobody, nobody even says boo, no paperwork, no nothing. So when people tell me, and I've caught, you know, as you know, uh, cougars loose in downtown Dayton, somebody's pet chewed through a door and got escaped, or they have uh, uh, black leopards loose in neighborhoods. 
people are laughing, you know, that's not real. That's not real. That's not real. Yes, it is. It's very real. That's why we need to stop these auctions. And we did in Ohio, but it took the Zanesville massacre to do it. We talk about the auctions and all the exotic animal ownership. One of the reasons Ohio was so ripe for a disaster like the Zanesville Zoo Escape and Terry Thompson is the simple fact that our laws were incredibly lax. Rachel talks about the state of Ohio's exotic animal laws leading up to this very tragic event in 2011. What most people don't realize is that in many states and in Ohio at the time, it's completely legal to own things like tigers and lions and bears. Um, Things have since changed in Ohio because of this incident with Terry Thompson, actually. But, um, you know, in four states still today, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Nevada, and Oklahoma, you can still do that. Like, you know, you don't really have to register. You don't have to get like a special license. You can just have whatever animals you want. The Zanesville Zoo Escape was not an unpredictable event, maybe in the way it went down and where it happened. But Tim Harrison was warning about this type of disaster for years. And actually one year before Zanesville, he's at the state house and he's talking to reps. He's talking to the governor and his people, Governor Kasich at the time. Tim warns it's really a prophecy. One year, October 2010, one year before the Zanesville Zoo escape. Rachel Neuer talks about Tim's efforts and the foreseeable nature. And then we'll play Tim's actual prophecy from the rotunda of the state house. On a national level, I know that it ignited the conversation um, and really woke people up for the first time to the fact that, oh my God, there can be dozens of like tigers living in my neighbor's backyard and I have no idea. Tim Harrison was campaigning for things to change and a bunch of people were and Ohio was kind of like, yeah, whatever, it's not an issue. And then boom, Zanesville happens. When you buy yourself a large predator, you immediately signed a death wish or death warrant. You've signed it because you are gonna die or the animal's going to die. There's no in-between. It's like I shake people's hands at some of those auctions that I'll be seeing you in the emergency room or I'll be seeing you later on when that animal's running loose and we're going to have to shoot it and kill it or put it out of its misery. I want you to remember this. Anybody that's listening up here, right? If you're listening in the hallways, you now know what's going on. You can no longer stick your head in the sand. You can't say, I don't know. That's what these cities always say. I don't know, right? We didn't know this was going on. Now you know. You've got Wayne here. You've got Mike here. It's done a, an award-winning film. You can no longer say to, hey, I told him this is happening. We didn't know it. You are now going to be held liable, both morally and, and, and financially, because I'm going to be the number one, number one witness, as I have been in many cities and states across the country, because I will be there and I will guarantee you, you cannot hide anymore. You cannot, you can't plead ignorant anymore. Welcome back, Matt Tullis from the Gangray Podcast, former reporter on the Columbus Zoo for the uh, Columbus Dispatch. We asked Matt just who was Terry Thompson, the man at the center of this story in his town of Zanesville, Ohio. So Zanesville, it's east of Columbus, definitely part of the the Appalachian part of Ohio. Used to be the state capital of Ohio a long time ago in the 1800s, about an hour east of Columbus. Terry Thompson, um, he was a, first of all, he was a Vietnam veteran and came back differently. A a lot of uh, his friends uh, talked about that, you know, after uh, everything happened in Zanesville. He, He was drafted into Vietnam and then he came back and he had done a lot of cool stuff. 
uh, in, in the area. He started a Harley dealership at one point in time in Zanesville. Uh, and then as the years went on, he got into the exotic animal world. In 1977, he bought a baby tiger, and that was kind of the first animal, uh, exotic animal that, that he bought um, at an exotic animal auction, which they happened in Ohio, uh, up, as, up in Amish country, that, you know, at Mount Hope and Sugar Creek. They, they had the ex- exotic animal auctions for, for a long time, but he bought that first baby tiger in 77 uh, and then started building up his collection, buying and selling animals. The first time uh, there were some issues with animals and him uh, in Zanesville was 2005. It wasn't the, the property where everything happened. It was, this, it was another property that he had for farm animals. There was some, uh, some cows that had been neglected and were in bad shape. But in general, I mean... He was, you know, he was buying and selling the exotic animals, keeping them on his property. He had a ton. But then in uh, 2008, I think 2008, um, the ATF raided his house and took away 133 guns. And they ultimately convicted him of owning a gun with no serial number and owning one machine gun, which he had an argument for why that, you know, why he had those. But he spent a year in prison. Right. And so everything that happened, you know, happened shortly after he got out of prison and got back to basically his farm in Zanesville uh, with all the animals. You know, one strange thing we found about Terry Thompson that really is a, is a link from his past is when he's in Vietnam, he actually has a pet monkey that would be, you know, help him stay sane when he's in the jungle fighting the Viet Cong. Terry's collecting all these animals. He has this dream of creating a place called T's Wild Kingdom. He's collecting guns and other items, but his life begins to fall apart in about 2007, 2008. I mean, the amount of money it takes just to keep this all going. I mean, he had a lot more than just the 50, 60 animals they found on this fateful day. He's selling animals, he's moving animals. But we talk with Matt Tullis about how things start to fall apart for Terry Thompson. Everything that, that, that Terry supposedly told friends, it had to do with the fact that his wife either had an affair while he was in prison or they were separated before he went to prison. There, there were marital issues. And they had been together for a long time, right? Yeah. I mean, they had been almost 40 years. They had been together. And then when he, when he was shipped off to prison, everything kind of fell apart there. And I think that I would imagine that would have played a large role in, in um, just, just what happened with him. And, and he, I think, obviously, too, um, suffered from some some long term effects of of being in Vietnam, some sure. PTSD, and and there was one friend who thought that maybe he was uh, he had been you know uh, suffered from some some contact with Agent Orange. Um, so there's a lot going on there, but in general, I he just he mentally I think he had some issues, and, and that's what what ultimately led to everything what he did. Nine yeah, this is Mr. Kobchak on Kobchak Road, and we live next to Terry Thompson, and there's a bear and a lion out. There's a bear and a lion out? Yeah, right, up behind us. And it's behind your house? Yeah, it's up in, and they're chasing their Terry's t- horses. I tried to get him, but there's no answer. Okay, I'll send it over. Thank you. Uh-huh. That 911 call by Dolores Kobchak, who was Terry Thompson's neighbor, crazy how calm she is and the dispatcher are uh, with what's actually going on but it's her son who's out in the field and he sees the horses running around notices a bear is loose goes grabs his horses and then he sees something in the corner of his eye and it's a lion sitting down right next to his fence watching him dispatch route um 
me and my son just went by the uh, 152 mile marker on Interstate 70, and down at Terry Thompson's. A bear and a lion. A lion's loose. Okay, we'll send someone out to check it out. Uh, okay, I didn't. I didn't yep, we got a call. Okay. Thank you. It's about 5 p.m. on October 18th, 2011, in Zanesville, Ohio, Muskingum County. Our guest Tim Harrison gets a phone call. Well, it's probably the worst night I ever had in my life. Worst two days. Uh, because uh, I've seen animals shot before. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a virgin, but it's one of those situations where the mass amount of them and the situation which could have been prevented is a dispatcher was trying to call me because we have a dart rifle and we have dart pistols and things like that. And we're retired police officers. And when they got in contact with Mike, the director, he comes to my house, bangs on the door. We got to go. There's something bad going over in Zanesville. I said, I got up because I had just worked a 24-hour shift. So I get up, I get all the gear, throw it in the vehicle, and off we go. Now it's still, there's some daylight out still there. We got over there. The shooting had already started at that time. It had to. The animals are out. We don't know how many. We don't know why. They're coming from Terry Thompson's, from Terry Thompson's farm, and nobody can get a hold of him. How did this happen? Why are there animals running down the road? Wild animals. Dozens of, of big cats, bears, cougars, you name it. Where's their owner and what happened to Terry Thompson? The first thing he did was he went and he cut through all the locks on all the cages uh, for all of the animals. And that's like African lions, tigers, bears, wolves, um, monkeys, birds, all kinds of uh, 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 exotic animals. But he cut through the locks. He didn't just open them. He cut through them. Um, which some people have speculated that he did that because he didn't want the animals to be able to be put back, if that makes yeah. sense, right? Um, so he cut through all the locks, uh, opened all the all the doors, cut through the locks. And then um, he was found not too far. He was outside uh, one of the buildings. He uh, scattered raw chicken kind of around an area, and then he put a gun in his mouth. And pulled the trigger and and killed himself. I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of the speculation was he he scattered the raw chicken to attract some of the the like the lions and the tigers, so they then so they then would come and eat his body, which they actually they started eating his body. I mean, he was found with parts of his body was missing. Um, when the cops first got there, there was a tiger on top of his body, kind of gnawing away. And so, yeah, that's kind of what he did. It's still light out. When our guest Tim Harrison arrives on the scene in Zanesville, he sees those flashing signs, caution, exotic animals, stay in your car. And Tim's not in Zanesville more than a minute when a SWAT team pulls up. It was amazing. We hit the Interstate 70. We're going down here and there's lights, these big traffic lights on the interstate. And they were flashing dangerous, exotic animals, stay in your vehicle, call 911. So Mike goes, oh my gosh, I think we got more than what we bargained for. This is not just, last time there was a lion loose that got away from him. That was it. That was easy to get back. This is like, holy crap, right? And then we pull over and there's nobody on the interstate. Nobody. And a whole truckload, a SWAT team go, pulls up next to us and goes, hey. And a couple of them over goes, hey, what, you here to help us? And I said, yeah. And he goes, he goes, and their eyes were big as saucers. They're going, it's unbelievable. It's like Jumanji out here. And some of them had tears in their eyes. And I'm like, what's going on? He says, I, I can't even explain it. He goes, I'm going to, I said, I'm going to the sheriff's office and check in. I said, I'll, I'll see what he needs me to do. And I said, I'll be back out. Good, good, good. And off they go again, right? I'm going, son of a gun. I've never seen cops that scared before. 
Calls are flooding in, and the call goes out. Deputy Jonathan Mary arrives at Dolores Kochek's house where the first report of, of a bear and a lion are loose. Sergeant Steve Blake arrives on the scene. Before they can really even ask Miss Kochek what's going on, animals start running by. We play you a clip of what happens to, for Jonathan Mary, the first on the scene. I had to run run through a field. It was, it was in a... Uh... Hayfield. Deputy Sheriff Jonathan Mary was one of the first to respond. Unfortunately, had to fire on the wolf. Who, after killing a wolf, stared down a black bear. The black bear then did turn in my direction and ran directly towards me. I fortunately was able to draw my duty pistol, fired one shot, uh, killing the animal instantly. Then a lion crawled under a fence and started heading for a neighborhood. The deputy put it down too. I'm an animal lover, grew up on a farm, you know, I loved animals my whole life. The events that happened last night were extremely unfortunate and I, I feel like me and the other deputies were forced into this situation due to Ohio's lax laws and in reference to exotic animals. At the last cage, the support officer reached in for the latch. Just then, both caught sight of something in their lights. A large hole cut into the side of the cage. Seconds later, a lioness pounces halfway out of the hole. Lawhorn clearly remembers her shoulder blades like pyramids pointing towards the night sky. She screamed in their faces four feet away from them. They opened fire, the support officer pulling out his hand and falling back. That's when they turned their lights and realized all the cages had been cut. The only thing between them and all those lions was air. The snipers heard shouts behind them. A tiger had spooked out of the barn and disappeared in some tall grass. Digging down in the weeds beside them, Knavel scanned the grass with his lights. He caught the smallest movement, a flip of an ear, he thought. I think I've got it, he whispered to the others. He dropped the muzzle of his AR-15 below where he'd just seen the ear, and he fired. The tiger jumped, straight up. That's what separated the tigers. It was the ground they could cover, even after they'd been shot dozens of times. They thrashed, Lawhorn says searching for the right words. They somersaulted. The other animals, even the lions, they went down when they were shot. The tigers went up. Bullets turned them into birds. They flew. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. That was an excerpt that we just read from the story Animals in Esquire magazine by Chris Jones. Uh, Chris was on our guest Matt Tullis's podcast, Gang Gray, last year. It's also another great article written the exact same time they came out the exact same day by Chris Heath in GQ magazine. It was an award-winning article as well. We asked our guest Matt Tullis to read us an excerpt from Animals by Chris Jones about what happens when one of Terry Thompson's caretakers arrives and they finally understand the full scope of the Zanesville Zoo escape. Terry's dead, Blake said, and there's probably 20 animals loose up there. There's more than that, John Moore said. He began a count, trying to remember each face, each pair of eyes. There were 17 or 18 tigers, nearly as many lions, mountain lions, leopards, bears, wolves, monkeys. 48, he said finally, maybe 49. By now, it was approaching 6 o'clock, 
there was maybe an hour of good light left and the storm was rolling in. On the other side of I-70, there was a nursing home, a McDonald's, an A&W, a gas station. There was a Super 8 motel. And just a mile down Route 40, there was a school surrounded by trees. Sheriff Lutz made a decision. The craziness of that first hour or so, it can't be underestimated. When they still had the, the light behind them, they're shooting animals, they're chasing down animals, they're getting calls, more officers are showing up with bigger weapons. It's an absolute nightmare. But as Tim Harrison gets to the command center and night has fallen, he talks about how these animals had to be shot. You always hear that question when people ask about Zanesville. Why can't we just tranquilize them? Why did they have to be shot? The answer is much more complicated than just shooting a dart into the animal. So we get there, and the first thing is I got my dart rifles. I got my uh, pistols. I'm getting ready to get And it's like, guys, we can't use these. I said, we can't use any of them now. And he goes, why is that? I said, it's dark. It's raining. I said, we can't dart an animal in the dark. Do you understand how dangerous that is to the animal and to us? I said, if we have to guess how much that animal weighs, first of all, we have to have a good visual on the animal to guess how much it weighs. And they're listening to me in the instant command post. I said, if you dart a tiger and you guess the weight at 300 pounds and it's 500, now you got a drug crazed animal. We've had this happen before. Running through your neighborhood. Now it's, you know, it's special K. Ketamine is part of the drugs that we use. Special K is what they use at ecstasy parties. So the lights get bigger. They have to put Chuckies in their mouth so they don't chew their own teeth, you know? So that's part of the drugs they use. So we can't dart them because we may not, you know, we may turn a, a, take an animal that's calm and turn it into something dangerous. Then I told him, I said, you know, we have to know generally how much they weigh. And there's no way in the dark, if you dart an animal that takes off and you can't find it. So we have to look out for the public safety, not turn a drug crazed animal loose through there. Sheriff Litz did make a decision and he stuck by it. And he still does today that all these animals had to be shot if they got out. And they were all out. Tim Harrison was there, and he still praises the leadership of Sheriff Matt Lutz of Muskingum County. He talks about the sheriff's decision and why he supports it. And we'll play you uh, a bit from Matt Lutz's first press conference while the event is still going on in Zanesville. I can tell you right off the bat, uh, Sheriff Lutz did a fantastic job. Nobody's ever been through this. There's not been a law enforcement officer or, <laughs> or a government official has ever been where 56 of the most dangerous creatures on the planet, bears, 38 big cats for god's sakes baboons turned loose on a city in the dark night actually saved us a little bit because people stayed in they did the reverse 911 they set up perimeters which was perfect the reverse 911 calling people is the, is the, is a godsend for all disasters but they tell people and the one thing about that area everybody knew terry and everybody knew there was there's not you know there's something a little bit different about him and he had already been bragging about, you put me in jail, Judge. When I get out, I'm going to turn all my effing animals loose and I'm going to blow my effing brains out. So it's no freak accident like Jack and the rest of them were saying. This was a given. I was begging to stop this before it happened. And it was, it was one of those situations where Sheriff Lutz was thrown into the most bizarre, off-the-wall disaster you could ever get into with what I say walking thinking ieds that could explode at any time we're not dealing with a hurricane we're dealing with something that somebody is turning an animal loose that's a predator that any book you open it up tiger's the number one predatory animal in the world i'm thinking come on man we're in a situation that is so dangerous at this time public safety had to be first those animals had to be shot 
because they're not coming in. And you guys do understand he cut all the fencing too. Yeah. Terry did. So we couldn't put them back in. There was nobody out there shooting animals for fun of it. Trust me on that no. one. Yeah. As you know, some of the officers have some post-traumatic syndrome over this situation. It is still, still not a completely secured area. Uh, highly volatile area. I am prepared to release right now that, that we feel comfortable saying that we're at about 43 to 44 of these animals that are accountable for. We had animals outside that fenced area along the road that were trying to get loose. I had deputies that had to shoot animals with their sidearms at close range. That's how volatile this situation was. We are not talking about your normal everyday house cat or dog. These are 300 pound Bengal tigers that we've had to put down. Um, when we got here, obviously public safety was my number one concern. I gave the order on the way here that if animals looked like they were going out, they went down. We could not have animals running loose in this county. We were not going to have that. Uh, once we got here, uh, realized the uh, severity of the situation, we at that point um, started running into a problem with darkness. Uh, we again were not going to have animals running loose on this farm at night. Uh, we can document numerous animals that got over the fence, uh, were out in the wooded areas outside the property that we've had to put down. We had officers down on the interstate that were preventing animals from crossing the interstate into our subdivisions and in our community. You know, they did try to tranquilize a tiger that next morning and it didn't work. But we asked every single guest, including, you know, journalist and animal activist Rachel Newark about Sheriff Slut's decision to shoot the animals and why they couldn't be tranquilized. Yeah, so Sheriff Lutz and his colleagues, you know, caught all sorts of flack for the way they responded to Zanesville. But Honestly, they didn't have a choice. And even today, my impression from speaking with him was that, you know, this is what we had to do and we did it. We don't have regrets. Like if only we didn't have to, like what, what they regret is that they were put in that situation to begin with. They never yeah. should have been in that situation. But, you know, when you suddenly have like dozens of potentially deadly wild animals running around a suburban area, there's no other choice, uh, but to unfortunately put those animals down, you know, like, Shooting a tranquilizer dart just isn't practical at all in this situation. Jungle Jack Hanna from the Columbus Zoo arrives about 2.30 that night. He meets with the sheriff uh, and gets the, the full scope of the situation. And he was somebody who also supported the, the sheriff's decision. They got all kinds of calls from all over the world. People just calling the sheriff's office and just screaming at the dispatchers that they should all be in jail, that they should all be shot for what they've done to these animals. We talk with Matt Tullis about Jack Hanna's response, and you'll hear from, from Jack himself, an interview he did during the Zanesville Zoo escape. Yeah, he did. And he took a lot of heat from it from, not necessarily from other zoo people, but from other private exotic animal owners uh, in a large part. I think, that, I think Jack was um, spot on, right? I mean, he knew that, what do you do in that instance, right? If, if you're out there, these animals at this point in time have no idea what's going on and they're going to be, they're going to be, they could be vicious. Right. And so I think Jack understood that. I think this goes back to what Jack went through in 1972. I mean, he watched it happen to somebody and he knew what could happen if nothing was done or if you tried the tranquilizer route or, or something like that. Um, I think he got it. And, and, and I think, he, like I said, he took a lot of heat from it, um, but mostly from other private exotic animal owners. 
Um, he took some more heat, too, because he stood up for legislation that was going to change Ohio's laws, right? Because Ohio's laws at the time, I think Ohio was like one of three states in the country that would allow a regular person on Main Street to own a tiger. Yeah. Right. I mean, I remember a long time ago, I had a great aunt whose neighbor had an African gorilla. Right. And it was so I mean, that was strange enough. But, you know, Ohio, <laughs> even in 2010, was kind of one of those rarities where people could do that. And, and Jack Hanna, even to further anger a lot of the private zoo owners, um, completely stood up and said, look, these laws need to be changed. This is this is this is the worst that can happen. And this is why we got to protect against that. So, no, I think Jack was right. I, I, you know, and I think Jack was right because I read Chris Jones's story and I couldn't <laughs> imagine, right. I mean, what that would have been like for anybody that was around there. And like, you know, if they had gotten even any farther away, like it says, there was a school barely a mile away. Um, and obviously it's the middle of the night, but what happens the next day, right? If, if yeah. you do not have school, if there are still animals out and about, I mean, I think, yeah, I think he made, I think he was right to defend the sheriff, and I think the sheriff was completely right to, to make the call that he did. Uh, you know, I can describe this as maybe like Noah's Ark breaking apart right between the Columbus Zoo, one of the finest in the country, and the wild 10,000 acres over here we have of animals, and the Ark, Noah's Ark breaking in front of us. All these, you heard 18 tigers. I, I do get emotional because 18 tigers lost their lives along with all these other creatures. But you know something? Not one human being lost their life here. Now, I'm getting calls from Europe, BBC, Canada, all over the world saying, oh my gosh, you support the sheriff. It's a matter that what happened here was it one of the largest animal escapes in the history of our country last night. And most all these animals, yes, lost their lives. But think about what happened here this morning with these tigers. Can you imagine the sheriff told me that when he got up there last night, right before it got dark, here they're coming down the, right in front of his property. 18 tigers, lions, uh, leopards just all going out of this whole place. Can you imagine? There's a neighborhood right here. Can you imagine what would have happened this morning if uh, the kids were on school buses out there waiting? This would have been something that nobody would have wanted to see. Three, about four hours ago, we had one Bengal tiger we found crouching down the bushes, I guess, up there is where they were. And all of a sudden, the veterinarian gets within 20 feet, pops the animal with the tranquilizer, the animal comes right for the veterinarian to shoot the animal. Now, what do you do in this case? I mean, we couldn't have done it last night in the dark. It would be impossible. You know, to have no one hurt or killed here when 40-something animals get loose is unbelievable. Now, am I upset? Of course I'm upset. I mean, we lost 18 Bengal tigers, lions, and all this other thing. But what do we do? Have human life versus animal life. danger at all this morning that something else could be lurking out there? We, we don't think so. Uh, we have uh, one animal that's unaccounted for, which was a monkey. Um, there is a, uh, a possibility that he would be loose, but we have had no report reported sightings of, of anything, and it's a high probability that he could have been eaten by one of the big cats. In the aftermath, there's still an animal, a monkey, a diseased monkey that's missing. We talked to Tim Harrison about the final animal uh, that was found from the Zanesville Zoo escape. After one monkey, the macaque had hepatitis B. Yeah. So what's the first thing I'm inside the incident command post, they're looking at me and they're saying, uh, you know, we're going to have to shoot that guy. I said, no, 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 don't shoot him. Unless you kill him, he's going to spread blood all over the place. I said, he's a, wa he's a walking, thinking hazardous material right there. Let me see if I can take care of that. And as we know later on, 
through the uh, veterinarian, the fantastic veterinarian for the wild. She did a fantastic job. She found the monkey inside, inside one of the lions later on down the road. The world turned its attention to Zanesville, and then the state of Ohio turned its attention to its lax laws. We talk with Tim Harrison about the battle. You wouldn't think it would be much of a struggle to get incredibly restrictive exotic animal ownership laws written in the state of Ohio. But Tim walks us through that battle in 2012. I actually use Ohio's laws. I use Ohio now as the gold standard of what happened afterwards. Because the first thing the, the bad guys did, the ones that set up these auctions, the ones that make fortune off of this stuff. I mean, literally a fortune, as you found out from the Tiger King, some of these other shows, millions into billions of dollars a year, you know, uh, with these animals. And these are the guys used to come to our state. Doc Antle, uh, you know, Joe Exotic, they would come to our state for the auctions to sell their animals, you know, because they have an expiration date. You know that tiger cubs do, right? Lion sure. cubs, they reach a certain size. You can't use them in public anymore. So they bring them to these auctions and get rid of them. Once that happened, Governor Kasich wrote uh, an executive order, if you remember, that was a really crappy executive order. And they asked me on ABC and NBC and all the rest, what do you think about this executive order you wrote after Zanesville? I said, it's like putting a Band-Aid on an arterial bleed. It's, it's way out of control right now. He said he just put something on there. Well, we, we'll, talk, we'll discuss this. We'll look at a list. You know, we can't do that. We need to stop it now. So then we battled, we battled, we battled. Other organizations came in, we battled. We actually had uh, um, Gigi Kendra. Her son was killed by the bear and partially eaten. A Sam Mazzola's bear up in, in uh, Cleveland was a wrestling bear and he was taking care of it. So we forced state of Ohio forced them, twisted their arm to actually pass legislation. And we got what we wanted. And it was good. It was really done well. The hit Netflix series, Tiger King, it talks about Terry Thompson's situation in the beginning. But that show took this country by storm, for better or for worse. It even was talked about that he was going to be, Joe Exotic was going to be up for a pardon from President Trump as he left office. So much so that it even came up during a coronavirus briefing. One of the biggest rating hits um, of the coronavirus, aside from these briefings, has been a show on Netflix called uh, Tiger King. Yeah. And uh, the man who's the star of this is a former zoo owner who's serving a 22-year prison sentence. Uh, he's asking you for a pardon, saying he was unfairly convicted. Um, your son yesterday jokingly said that uh, you know he was going to advocate for it. And I was wondering if you've seen the show and if you have any thoughts on uh, pardoning uh, Joe Exotic. Which son? It must be Don. I had a feeling it was Don. Is that what he said? I don't know. I know nothing about it. He has 22 years for what? What did he do? He allegedly hired someone to murder an animal rights activist, but he said that he didn't do that. And he was. You think he didn't do it? Are you on his side? Uh, well, I, are you, are you recommending sides, a pardon? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not advocating anything. As a reporter, you're not allowed to do that. You'd be criticized by these. Would you recommend a pardon? I'm not weighing in on time. I don't King. think you would. I don't think you would. Go ahead. Do you have a question? I'll take a look. Is that Joe Exotic? That's Joe Exotic. Now with the hit Captivating America, Tiger King was the number one tweeted show in the U.S. this weekend. And I spent most of my weekend right here on the couch, like millions of other people, transfixed by the Tiger King. It has to be seen to be believed, and even then it's so wild that you can't help but think it's the perfect phenomenon for our strange times. It's the Netflix series everyone is talking about. There's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. Tiger King, the salacious, scandalous, and very bingeable true crime docuseries. But amid the cultural celebration, some opposition. 
namely from Howard and Carol Baskin, the husband and wife unhappy with the way they're portrayed in the series, claiming they were deceived by the filmmakers from the very beginning. I believe they are devoid of integrity, don't care about the animals, and clearly, clearly do not care about the truth. Look, I, Miss Ohio View the World and I watched Tiger King. We, we enjoyed it. Uh, it's right at the start of the pandemic. It really came out at the absolute perfect time when nobody was out uh, and everyone was home and streaming. But there's some major holes in that program. It's presented as a documentary, but it's really reality TV. And it's it seems rather scripted. What Rachel Neuer and many other people in the animal rights in the in the big cat protection community uh, took offense with is, is there's no messaging there about this problem, this huge problem in the United States. Uh, we talk with Rachel. They do a great final episode on, on cat people where they break down the problems with Tiger King. And we ask her just about her thoughts on the program. Don't get me wrong. I have nothing wrong with reality TV, but, you know, call it what it is, you know, a scripted fake version of reality, quote unquote. Um, Unfortunately, when Tiger King was pitched to a lot of the people that they interviewed for the show, it was falsely portrayed as the blackfish for big cats. Um, You know, probably a lot of people have seen blackfish. It changed the way SeaWorld deals with its orcas. Um, This definitely was not the blackfish for big cats. You know, nothing good in terms of conservation messaging was uh, really in there. You know, it wasn't clear, you know, what is the legality of the stuff? Like, what is the problems associated with it? Instead, it was really just more focused on the soap opera drama of Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin. Um, And, you know, the Tigers were just kind of props in all of that. And, you know, a lot of people just missed the message completely that there is a problem here. And all the rest were left wondering, okay, well, wait a minute, like, what about the tigers? Like, what's being done here? Why is this happening? There's definitely a false equivalency that's spun there that Carol Baskin is the same as all these breeders who are out for profit when, in fact, Big Cat Rescue, the organization she spearheads, is championing the end of big cat ownerships for everybody. The Big Cat Public Safety Act was passed by the House in 2020. Uh, and expired, and now we look to see if it can be passed again this year. Tiger King, as much as uh, it left some things out, it also played a role, in, and it did bring this issue to light, not so much because of the, the content of the of the video, but it just brought exotic animal ownership. So it almost accidentally brought the Big Cat Public Safety Act uh, to the forefront. And it's been working on this issue for years, and where we sit right now with the Big Cat Public Safety Act. I put public safety on stuff in Ohio. I put public safety stuff in Oregon. I put public safety on, and that seems to hit the legislators because you can, they don't give a crap about the cats. Trust me. As soon as you start saying the police are the first ones on the scene. So once we got that going, the big cat public safety act, it started building it. We got it through the house last year. Now you do it and you know, we have to, we have to vote again on it. It's it's, uh, HR 263 this time we got, a little, I think we got a few more Republicans this time too for it to be passed. It has to go through the House again because it's a new, a new session. Yeah. So it's ready to go. We just got to wait. We got, there's a mess going on right now. So we're just kind of waiting our time and, and bring it in. It's, it is something that it has not Democrat. It's not a Republican thing. It's not a libertarian thing. It's a common sense thing. I don't want a tiger living next to me. Okay. Because there's no more, there's no more pet pay to play. 
you can't go and get your picture taken with the tiger cub anymore. Big Cat Rescue, uh, uh, Carol Baskin and Howard Baskin, they put together and made a beautiful legislation. They put that together. They're the ones that architect what's out there right now. Yeah. They took the uh, stuff that we started and made it into a legislation that's that's palatable. We leave you today. You know, I was left wondering when I let read Rachel's book Poached and you watch Tiger King and some of these videos, these terrible videos that Tim sent me of you know, the auctions and all these things. Well, what can I do? And there's, you know, some things that you can do, but we talk with Rachel Neuer about that. What can an average person do? And her answer was was remarkably simple. Go vote. It's really easy to be despondent about this issue and just be like, oh, this is like a thing that happens in Africa and Asia and has nothing to do with me. Um, There's small things you can do, you know, like don't buy ivory abroad, you know, obvious things. But Uh, really the big issue here is voting. You know, we can uh, choose to elect representatives who care about these issues. Um, The U.S. is one of the biggest supporters of um, combating wildlife trade abroad. We have all kinds of fish and wildlife attaches in different countries working on this issue and conducting investigations. There's investigations going on here, but you know, those investigations and efforts need support. And to have support, we need leaders who believe that this is a problem. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading. Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation obviously is Poached Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking by our guest Rachel Newark. Rachel writes an amazing book, came out in 2018. She travels the world and examines this problem that we discussed from Asia to Africa to North America, South America, I mean, just all over the world. And uh, it's a very difficult subject. Uh, We listened to the book on Audible, actually, um, but we implore you, there'll be a a link in the show notes to the book, and we, we implore you to buy it because it is excellent, and it's not as dark. She does a wonderful job of making it almost like a travel story. Uh, and so it, it was really well done. We talked to Rachel about her book and how you make such a really depressing, difficult subject uh, almost fun. I mean, early on, I knew that, okay, people aren't going to want to just willingly sign up to read like 200, 300 pages about animals dying. I had to find a way to lighten it up. <laughs> and I also uh, wanted to find a way to kind of string these different issues together. You know, we've got like ivory, rhino horn, tiger bone trade, exotic pets, Um, So I decided in the end to put myself, you know, rather reluctantly into the book and kind of uh, spun it as a travel journey. You know, each chapter examines a specific issue in the wildlife trade and also takes place in a different part of the world. So in a way, it's kind of a a travel adventure. It's um, investigative journalism. And, you know, I did try to make it as 
fun. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word as possible though. You know, my cheesy humor will definitely come through for better or for worse. Yeah. It took me to 12 countries over the course of a year and a half. Um, you know, we're talking everywhere from, uh, let's see, Malawi and South Africa to Laos and Japan, China, Vietnam. Um, I also went to the UK. I went to some labs here in the US. I really tried to do kind of a, a nice overview of this huge issue that affects us all. To go get poached, uh, the, her wonderful book from 2018. And a, another special thanks to Matt Tullis. You can check out his podcast, Gang Gray. Uh, and also he had Chris Jones, who wrote the great article, Animals, for Esquire magazine, uh, that episode from last year. Uh, but he interviews just amazing investigative journalists, narrative journalism uh, from all over. Uh, so it's a really, really cool uh, interviews on that show. Again, Gangrey, G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Um, and also special thanks to Tim Harrison, director for Outreach for Animals. If you want to do anything to support uh, this movement, you can always donate to uh, Outreach for Animals. They call themselves the number one advocate for proper behavior around animals, you can go to their page, outreachforanimals.org, and donate. We talk with Tim about his great organization he started in 2001 uh, and how just a little bit of money, again, outreachforanimals.org, uh, or follow them on Facebook too, great follow. We implore our listeners, if you've got 5, 10, 15 bucks, uh, go drop it on them because they'll make good use of it. When I started doing this, I was a person that I would rescue. I never bought an animal in my life, but I would rescue tigers and I would keep them on my property because there was no place for them to go. There was no rescue facilities out there. It was trustworthy. So I had tigers, I had bears, I had venomous snakes till I slowly would find places for them to go that I could trust. I actually was a, a person that was not, I didn't disagree with people that had the ability to own them at that time. But then I went to Africa and it was like a transformation. I went with an organization over there. I went as a security man, as a paramedic for snake bite, over to Africa with an organization that was building a zoo down in North Carolina. So I got over there and I, first thing I saw was these giraffes running. And I just got a giraffe out of somebody's garage in Troy, Ohio, that they bought it at their auction. Its head was down, it atrophied so badly. Once they got it out, the local zoo close there had took them a year to get them to get its neck the muscles to build back up to get a snack back up from living in a garage. That's what I saw as a giraffe, right? Or a zoo, right? Where they just right. got to loop around. I saw that and I said, man, I had a transformation. Then when I saw the, the lions, I said, oh my God, look at the hair poke up on their bodies. This is not like the lions that I saw, you know, Astabula. This, these are real lions. These are real wild. I never want to see them in a cage again. And that's what transformed me. I was, the, I was the hot dog. I was the outcast. I was an idiot. I'm the one, you know, who's going to make them lose all their money. You don't understand conservation. You don't understand, but I have to take a tiger cub to that high school because that's the only way they learn about conservation. Getting this organization, and, and we didn't start till 2001. That's what Outreach for Animals is. It's an organization of police officers, firefighters, paramedics, uh, animal control, uh, um, you know, emergency room doctors, pediatric physicians, lawyers, and veterinarians, like I said before, all got together to teach proper behavior on wildlife, to help rescue, relocate, do surgeries. We've done some amazing surgeries in backyards. For a perfect example, one of the guys that works with us from Michigan is a top facial reconstructive surgeon for humans. How can I help you? I got eight cats in a backyard in Ashland, Ohio. Can you come? And they all got facial damage because they train them with ball bats. I don't know if you know that, to do tricks. They train them with... Uh, uh, the softball bats, the aluminum ones, and they crack their faces, their teeth will get rotten and it's horrible. 
So he comes in, he starts doing these surgeries. And, and when they go to the sanctuaries and they get x-rayed by the veterinarians there, they're like, holy crap, who did the surgery? I, I want them to work on me. They volunteer, but we still have to get the people there. We have to make sure everybody's fed. We have to make sure the animals are taken care of. We have to buy the drugs for these animals to be taken care of. So uh, sadly to say, we get very little donations, but if we can get, pick up donations, you'll know where every cent goes because I do not get a salary. There's nobody in Outreach for Animals that gets a salary. And I, I do that for a purpose because if you get too much money, as we see with the big organizations, the big mammoth animal organizations, they're driving Lexuses, they're driving yeah. Land Rovers. Uh, the money is not always going to where it's supposed to be. And I know this by traveling around the world. You give me $5, that's like giving somebody else $500. I can take that and do more with it than anybody else. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, episode 3, Ohio vs. Exotic Animals, here on the 10th anniversary coming up of the Zanesville Zoo Escape. Also, don't forget, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter. Obviously, our Facebook page has a lot of activities. You can talk to us there or just email the show. If you have show ideas, uh, you can email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Uh, we also have great Ohio v. The World t-shirts. If you want one, you can email us. $15 free shipping, uh, and they are really cool. You can find those on our Instagram and, and Facebook as well. And thanks again to our friends at Evergreen Podcast, evergreenpodcast.com. We're part of their great podcast network now, and you can go find amazing shows on any topic uh, with Evergreen. Thanks again. We'll be back in two weeks. We're releasing shows every other Tuesday. Again, if you subscribe, they'll just show up on your phone or device. And we'll be talking about Ohio versus treason. I feel like treason's been in the news a lot uh, here in 2021. And we'll talk about the first instance when a vice president was tried for treason here in the United States. We'll go back 200 years and tell the story of Aaron Burr. We'll also look at the uh, treason trial of another Ohioan who assisted the Nazis. She went by the name of Axis Sally. Incredible story there. And we'll talk about both of those treason stories in our next episode. And thanks again for listening, guys, to Ohio v. The World. We'll see you next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.